Hi there, I'm Trudy Lico, and you're listening to Mama's Kitchen, the series that explores what's life really like for women and girls in regional Australia. So pop the kettle on, put your feet up, and join me as I share a cuppa with some pretty amazing women. Healthcare can be really complicated when you live a long way from specialist care. Today, I'm chatting with Marianne Lethbridge and Michelle Pacey. Michelle Pacey has been right beside her husband while he has undergone skin cancer and lymphoma. It's been an all-consuming battle for them both to try and juggle treatment, work and raising their two daughters. Marianne Lethbridge's life took a very unexpected turn when six years ago she had a stroke. Since then, it's been a fight to return to life on her vineyard. Marianne, what do you remember from having your stroke? Well, I was at school, at, at a school assembly, standing at the edge of the seated students, and I felt a little strange, and I went outside onto the veranda, and from there, the best way I can describe it is having a feeling of quickly being having my head and my breathing passages filled up with kind of like grey steel wool. It was heavyish, and I couldn't struggle out of it and I knew something really strange and awful was happening. When you were recovering in the hospital in the days after that, what hope or what future did the doctors foresee for you? The prognosis, um, after about three to four days, I knew it was something terrible because I I couldn't move. As it turned out, it, it's like a blood clot stopped somewhere in your brain and they referred to it as critical incident trauma. And I realised in my fog that I was something was dreadfully, dreadfully wrong. But it took about a week... Because I couldn't ask questions properly and communicate properly because I'd lost speech, it took about a week to for it to filter in that something was very paralysed and the discussions soon turned to finding an end-of-life place for me in the medical system vis-a-vis being tucked away into an old-age people's care home. Did you have a feeling of being trapped in your body so mentally you were aware of what was going on but you couldn't communicate or express your concerns yes yes that's spot on my concept of time at that time was inaccurate and I suppose that maybe took three to seven days before I realized I was pretty well done for in at that time I thought my life my life is on need it to be had gone forever you were in your early 60s when you had the stroke which is quite young for a stroke was your immediate thought of having to go into permanent care and not returning home how did you feel about that I never entertained that thought it just kind of wasn't on my radar we had left both my husband and I Ed and I'd left well Ed actually was still working in his career, I'd left my career because I'd always vowed to do that when I was 60 and pursue another adventure, which was in agriculture and business. we just invested our life savings in in that dream and it just wasn't 
possible. I couldn't wrap any of my thinking around the fact that this was all going to come crashing down into a horrible, bankrupt pile. So I guess my immediate feelings were panic and, you know, the old psychological fear of fight or flight. I guess it was a fight. I stayed in the Friendlies for about six weeks and by the end of that six weeks I was able to be influential in decision-making processes about our business and which direction we should go in and how we would move forward and I was... Yes, I was able to to think, albeit that thinking was pulled and pushed around by emotionality. But luckily, my most of my intellectual f- faculties were present and able to be used, even though I couldn't. I was immobile and fairly speechless. Michelle, over the last five years, what are some of the procedures and treatments that your husband Al has had to go through? Al's actually kept a diary of everything that he's had done to him so he's got a list of 66 procedures that he's had in the last five years that have ranged from small just surgeries that chop out a a small skin cancer to huge scalp resections. He had a vac pump on his head for eight months that had to be changed three times a day which was very painful for him to go through Um, he's had four rounds of radiation on different parts of his head Uh, he's due to have a a bowel resection at the end of the year but that was supposed to happen a couple of years ago um, but they weren't able to do it and really the the skin flap so it's sort of the type of cancer that he had first which was a skin cancer it's basically a, a slash and burn type of approach to get rid of it so that was essentially radiation and and surgery that because of the um, recurrence of the skin cancers just kept getting bigger and uglier with lots of staples (laughs) which was a bit Frankenstein-y sometimes sorry Al. (laughs) How many of these procedures treatments were you able to undergo from your home hospital of Bundaberg and how many of them did you have to travel away for? So the actual surgeries themselves were all done up here in the Friendlies and um, the scalp resection that he had at the end of, I think it was 2015, uh, it was done at Greenslopes Hospital in Brisbane mainly because of the the huge skin graft that had to come off his leg as well as the delicacy of, of the 15 by 10 centimetre area on his scalp that had to be reattached. So that was quite a long surgery. I think it was a, uh, 8 to 10 hours for that one which was just phenomenal that a surgeon can do that so we were really really grateful for that Um, but we were very lucky that most of the surgeries could happen up here. So what took you out of the region so what type of treatment and how long were you away for when you had to do those stints? So in 2013 when Al started doing radiation there was no radiation clinic here in Bundaberg so we had to go to Nambour was the clearest uh, sorry closest one um, so that was six weeks away in Nambour. Uh, we were able to come home on weekends, which was really good. So he did that in September, and then because of a recurrence of the skin cancer, he had a second round of radiation six weeks again in February of the next year, which was 2014. The next time he needed radiation, we were able to have it up here because the radiation clinic had opened. So that was lovely to be able to sleep in our own beds and have a relatively normal 
time during that. Marianne, you fought very hard to get a place in rehab and then you were in rehab for nearly three months, I think it was. What did you have to relearn when you were in rehab? It's interesting about strokes. Um, The earlier start rehab, the more effective the outcomes will be. And I had known this because I had a background, a teaching background and a master's that somewhat specialised in the plasticity of the brain. And I'd, I'd use that throughout my teaching career. I had an innate, urgent understanding that I had to get into rehab as fast as I could. I began to campaign and look for the nearest rehab hospital, which was the old Nambour Hospital, Michelle, you might be interested. And that was then now called the Karoi Rehabilitation Hospital. And so armed with that little piece of information, I started badgering my attending physicians and they they said, no, no, you've got to really accept that this is your outcome which I didn't accept, but every time they sat on the edge of my bed, the the conversation swirled around finding a placement, a local placement, not ever going home, just somewhere where I could be kind of vegetated, I suppose, and which made me swing between great um, grief, real deep-seated grief, and a bit of anger and panic, And I said, no, this cannot be my future. So eventually I think they might have just got a little bit fed up of this yammering, I suppose you'd call it. (laughs) So I, not reluctantly, but unwillingly, they signed the papers. You can go to Karoi, but it's all on your own head. You know, you've got to take the risks yourself. And so then off I went to Karoi and they asked me what I wanted to be able to do before I was discharged. And I said, I have to be out because I'm in the tourism industry dealing with wine, grape growing and winemaking and the selling and serving of food and wine. I need to be able to carry a tray of wine glasses from the kitchen to a group. And they, I think they went gulp and then, okay. So you help write your own program and then it's up to you. And I did my program for 10 hours a day and throughout that time I regained the ability to walk, to balance, to speak. The only remaining difficulty I have five to six years onward is a condition called aphasia, which is the stumping and searching for words and also I have a confusion between numbers that are configured alike, like three, five and eight. Marianne, how isolating was it being in rehab in Karoi because this is outside of your home, outside of your community. Did you see many of your family and friends during that time? Well, I guess I was already quite isolated during my well wellness time because I'd come. Um, my parents are migrants, so I was born into isolation and having to fight for acceptance and struggle for acceptance in a new country. I did gain a much greater appreciation of the struggle they went through to come and live in Australia. And I had to struggle to be accepted as a child in the education system because I had, I guess, a different look and a different name, perhaps some struggle with English. So I was kind of trained up to be isolated and it allowed me to, to focus, but I 
was very, very, very homesick. I cried every day to go home. I cried for what I thought I'd lost forever. And in all that struggle, I have a, a big family of siblings and my nearest sibling at the same time as I. And I always reflect that it was, why did we both have a big physical knock at the same time? But he was diagnosed, he's my brother Richard, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And at the time, I remember being told that he had no hope and the bottom just fell out of my world. I didn't want to try anymore, really. I just thought we'd both go together and we'd... Yeah. So um, the superintendent of that Karoi Hospital spent hours and hours sitting on my bedside talking it through, which I believe is pretty much unheard of, that they would spend so much time invested in you. But he did say to me I had to pay him back and that was because my job then was to, when we went down to sort of like a big gymnastic sort of room where we did our programs, I had to drag along my fellow um, patients and one was a 19 and a half year old motorbike, horrendous motorbike victim, another person in my age group with a stroke who wouldn't try and then there were a few others. So I marched around the ward every morning saying, come on, we're all going to go down to this place. We could do our job. And we, yeah, it was an, we developed a rapport of the community, but I did not see my husband only once he could visit because of the pressures of looking after the farm and still keeping his job in Brisbane. And I really didn't have any friends to visit because I was new to the area anyway and hadn't got to know many people. So isolation proved to be a spurring on of getting well and getting out of there and getting back to normalcy. Michelle, you're nodding your head. Obviously, you understand well the sacrifices that come from making those family decisions of how and who and where and what. How disruptive was Al's treatment away to normal family life, to work, to school, to your social life? It was, it really was a bombshell. So at the time we were a lovely textbook nuclear family and we still are, thank heavens. Um, you know, both parents working, I was working point eight. We had an eight year old and a 10 year old, pretty well-rounded kids. Um, and then to suddenly have both parents not working. Kids are at an age where they can't just be taken away from their friends or from their routines because they're still at that still a very formative age so you've they they need their friends they're at a stage where they still identify themselves as part of their family even though they're trying to become more independent um so that was part of the shock of going with this rather tenacious skin cancer that kept coming back and kept morphing and changing and seemed innocent enough but just wouldn't go away so when finally al had to go for radiation down at, at nambour um, I was doing uh, Chicago with the Playhouse. I wasn't on stage, I was helping with a lighting box. So I had, and I was working at Jin Jin as an art teacher. So I had that part of my identity and I had being a mum. It just sort of took, you just drop everything and you go because that's what you've got to do. We were really lucky that my mum was able to come up and stay with the girls and keep their routine and actually keep everything familiar for them. So, so that was there, but really it was, what are our savings doing? How are we going to pay for this? The radiation's $200 a day, cash up front. 
So Al and I were at Maroochydore, away from the girls, having five minutes of radiation every day. So drive to Nambour, have his five minutes of radiation, drive back, sort of sitting around Maroochydore, feeling like it's a paid holiday because, you know, there's no stitches and there's no... You don't feel sick when your first couple of weeks of radiation. I mean, your skin blisters. So we're sort of feeling guilty but aware that, you know, it wasn't without some sort of toll on things. So most of it was making sure that when we came home we spent lots of time with the kids and also showed my mum that we're really grateful that she would, she dropped everything she's semi-retired so she dropped everything to come look after the girls and then when we we're in Maroochydore just I, f well, I didn't feel it but I was really mindful of just making sure Al kept his morale up so if he's feeling tired have a sleep if he's feeling like doing something take him out for a walk somewhere and have a coffee and just be a normal human being not someone who has to have his head screwed down onto a table for 10 minutes a day while they, while they burn his skin, which would have been pretty terrifying. I mean, we, we kept all the cages that I had for his face. I wouldn't have been able to do it. It would have just freaked me out to actually have that thing over my face for even just for five minutes. So it, it did become about mental health being just as important for the good outcome as well as the medical, the medical side of things. So we had really, really good specialists and we had you know, excellent resources from that point of view. But the mental health side of things was just so important. Marianne, your physical battle was a big one, but how hard was the mental health toll while you were in rehab as well? Gosh, um, I feel for Michelle what she was just talking about. It is, it is difficult. There's no doubt about it. Your, you know, your emotionality is is hypersensitive. And so every small thing seems a little bit verging on the side of insurmountable. Your ability to reason, I suppose, might go out the window a fair bit. Just the sheer effort of being tired and weary, it's like a battle. And I suppose you do fight it on a few fronts. My brother's prognosis was profound. I didn't communicate with him very much. It was a little bit before the time that you could sit down and Skype very easily and do things like that and message. I used to look at Ed and wonder what was going on inside his head. He is the kind of person who he's the exact opposite to me. I'm the big, oh, I see the darker side and, and I am, I suppose, really... I'm a deep thinker, whereas Ed, Ed is just so Australian and he just goes, she'll be right, mate. And, I mean, it's a great, it used to annoy me, but there's a great deal to be said for that approach because your mental, state of your mental health, particularly in what I was um, working my way through, has a profound influence on, on success or lack thereof. We'd never sat down and talked about it in, in depth, possibly really 10 hours a day is a long rehab program so we possibly didn't have time and I think that's why I valued the, the superintendent's time and the conversation with him so very much. I really didn't talk to anyone. I was offered counselling but it ate into the program of the physical rehabilitation so I chose to forego the counselling for the physical Probably this is the most I've ever talked about, interestingly enough. Michelle, when a big health battle happens, everything goes on hold. How much during this process 
did you feel you lost a little bit of yourself or had started to see yourself take on a different identity? I guess I'd always, I'd always wanted to be this perfect art teacher. So I had this idea that, you know, that was when my, I had this niche and I'd get to, at Jinjin especially, like I was going to be the master of my realm and, you know, I could, I could do all the things and it was going to be great and I'd be the best I can be. So, and that, there was ego in that. <laughs> whether it was realistic or not it was just part of the dream um, so when Al got sick it put a disruption in that dream but in supporting him my reaction to that was to control what I could control so that was our that got to be our mantra because the every three months the skin cancers would come off and it would be a bigger surgery or a bigger lot of radiation or something so it used to be look control what you can control and then anything else just you know deal with it as it comes it's not personal so that was it but as my identity changed from being the support, but then I was never, I could never go back to being the person I wanted to be as an art teacher. And you know, it's highly possible I was never going to be that person anyway, which is something you only know when you're older and you look back and go, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but I do remember just sitting and crying in the car, probably after, during the second year of his, of his thing when we had to have another lot of radiation, just going, I'm never, I'm never going to get to be what I want to be, which, at the time I felt really selfish because obviously being a great teacher is not the same as winning a battle against something that's in your body that's trying to kill you. So, And Al was really good and supportive with that because he realised it was just fatigue and tiredness and just where I was at. So that changed my identity but just having that cry just let that release. So it was like now's not the time, if I get to come back to it that's fine because really it was about supporting him and supporting the kids and supporting me where I needed it obviously. But it for, because he was basically had the war going on in him it was about supporting him and, and his mental health and making sure that that everything was optimal for him getting better his identity he's gone from someone who was sporty and and relatively outdoorsy to and someone who was a, a manager for IT in his particular job um, away from that job for 12 months so he's come back they've decided they don't need him anymore because while he was away everything kept running um, which there were reasons because he could do everything remotely so there was sort of that in there anyway but also he's come back to not being able to go outdoors and not having the energy for him to do things so he's come back as a feeling a little bit reduced in how he sees himself and I've come back as someone who is very mindful of supporting him so for a couple of years there I didn't give everything to something that I was really passionate in because I just needed to be there in case you know we needed to drop everything and go somewhere else again so that sort of changed and it's only sort of been this year that I've really let go of all of the the positive and the negatives that came out of that just to start afresh but it's taken a good two years of waiting for something bad to happen when it hasn't happened in the last two years but just before you go right okay I'm pretty confident that I can do this and we know that if something does crop up again we're strong enough to do it we know we've got the support group to do it we know our kids are strong enough to do it so we just prefer not to do it can I say <laughs> Marianne how about yourself have you come out the other side of your recovery and having gone through this health battle have you come out different oh I think you'd have to say yes I guess the question is how different in what way um, there is a lot to be said for this discussion or this kind of thought out there of the invisible handicap 
sometimes, not often, but sometimes I wish there was just a little symbol you could wear to say, world, people in the world, if I'm like this, it's, there is a reason. And, and, and I'm all my life, well, throughout my teacher training, my studies and so forth, I've always picked up on the fact that you've got to unpackage stuff to understand it. You just don't say, oh, A leads to B and you treat it with C. So I've become better at unpackaging, certainly understanding how I feel about things. I'll never be the same because like Michelle, I'm, you just lose the persona you are. My persona, I think, was I can climb any mountain, any time of the day, yeah, I'm invincible. And I think that's really healthy and most people feel like that, thank goodness. But yeah, I came out of it different. Michelle, how different would your experience and this battle have been if you guys lived near the hospital where you could get all of your treatment? If you had been in the city and if you hadn't have had those long periods of time away from the girls and things like that, how, how different would it have been? It would have been a lot easier from the start. Um, so any of the operations or treatments that Al was able to have here in Bundaberg just meant that he could gummage down, come straight home, he could sleep in his own bed, the kids could see him, we could all interact with him, we could all share what was happening with him. So any time that Al and I were taken away from the family meant that the girls sort of didn't, and they were pretty young, but they still, they can see stuff, so kids aren't silly, but they did miss some understanding of what was happening so so for example um Al would go away we'd have radiation so he'd come back and his skin would look quite a bit different because for six weeks you know with the the blisters and from the radiation burns and things like that probably the most the most severe surgery he had was actually done here where they did the bone scrub so he came out with the um, vac pack on his head that he had for eight months so that was probably the most visually distressing one that he had but again we were home for that one so the girls were we were able to prepare them for that shock if you want to say that and they were resilient they're resilient kids and we were always really open about talking about things that had happened travel time travel costs we were really lucky that the government the hospital here in town would pay for um, anything that was over 200 kilometers away so we did get free accommodation in Maroochydore for his radiation when the radiation was down there. And we got a, a travel subsidy as well. Um, and then when he, any surgery he's had in Brisbane, we've got relatives down there that we stay with. So that's, that's been very, very handy. Michelle, do you feel like you're out of the woods or are you still in the middle of it? Um, I won't ever feel like we're out of the woods. That sounds very dramatic but um so I'm pretty sure with his skin cancer which was the most dramatic lot of uh work that he had we know it's is not going to come back because they removed lymph nodes and they removed everything that could possibly go wrong for that one and we've had two clear years of nothing coming up so very confident that that's not there but Al's had um Crohn's disease and then he's having a bowel resection later on in the year for uh intestinal blockage because of the Crohn's and then he's also got lymphoma. So um, the lymphoma is in remission. So we found that out six months ago. So that's hopefully, fingers crossed, that gives us another 15 to 20 years before that has to be addressed again, which would be, touch wood, absolutely fantastic. But I think, I think when you go through something like this, you realise just exactly how nothing is guaranteed. 
So even even looking at my own kids going, well, it's not you shouldn't take for granted that you're going to have the healthy life that you see on television, for example, because you just you don't know what you're going to be dealt with. So I think it's it's also just being mindful of being present in the day and just living with flexibility and so you go, I have plans, I have goals, I want to go and do this. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. It just means that I've got to change it and do it a different way. Marianne, has there been any positives for you that have come out of this experience? Oh, yes. Um, I guess it's easy to say after the worst of it is over, but like Michelle, I can empathise so much with what she's saying and I'm starting to get tears in my eyes. But yes, every, every sunset, and this sounds real corny, or every time... I love, love growing things. And every time we have bud bursts, you know, I walk down to the vines and they're quite beautiful because there's these tiny, frail little green leaves just sprout out of these ancient browny, grey trunks. I just think it's a bit of like a miracle and I think it doesn't matter if this is the last bud burst I ever get to see, at least I've seen it, you know, and I've been there and yeah, there's a certain stillness enters the soul, a certain peace that you can cope with difficult things. It's, it's, perhaps it's not a question of can we cope. I think human frailty is, is steel, like steel, but the fact how you cope with it is what makes you that person or takes away from what you are and how you use that for the remainder of your life or how it influences your outlook. Like, I don't take anything for granted ever anymore. And I've had a few bumps and bruises along the way. Growing older isn't easy. And particularly when your head says, oh, I was only 19 a few weeks ago. And, and then your body reminds you that this is far from the truth. Thank you very much. Um, but it gives you a sort of inner grace and an, a, a resilience and, and a thankfulness too of very small, insignificant stuff. You've been listening to Mama's Kitchen, presented and produced by me, Trudy Ligo. This podcast has been made possible by the fabulous folks at Creative Regions and with the generous support of the WOW Regional Voice Program, the Tim Fairfax Family Foundation and ABC Wide Bay. You've also been listening to One More Round by David Seste from the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening in.